Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Okay. Our guest today, Corey, is Kaya Perina. She is the editor-in-chief of Psychology Today. I am going to read her uh, bio from Psychology Today, which is written in first person. So although I'm reading this, I'm actually uh, pretending to be Kaya. I'm the editor-in-chief of Psychology Today. Prior to PT, I worked at magazines large and small, defunct and very much still alive. Rest in peace, Brill's content. Not going anywhere soon, Vogue. Before that, I worked briefly in wire services and even more briefly in television news. My own writing for Psychology Today is anthologized in the Best American Science Writing series. The question I'm most frequently asked is whether I have formal training in psychology. My stock reply was once, only if you count years of psychotherapy. I now tell people simply and no less honestly that lifelong curiosity about human behavior is ample schooling. As to formal schooling, I hold degrees from Vassar College and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Welcome, Kaya. Thanks. Very happy to be here. Great to have you. So we discussed what we were going to talk about because there are so many things we could cover. And maybe if we uh, have time near the end, we'll branch into some of the other things. But we agreed that we would focus on uh, something called psychopathology, also sometimes uh, discussed in the context of the dark triad of personality traits, Machiavellian nature, uh, psychopathology, and narcissism. I understand that you have both personal and professional perspectives on this topic, which you're going to share with us. And uh, so let's start there. And first, let Cor- I'm going to let Corey jump in if he wants uh, any specific definitions or clarifications of what these things are. We could maybe start with that. I guess I want to just start with the idea that psychopathology, I understand, is a very broad category encompassing anything that could go wrong with the mind or the nervous system. But you're focusing on these particular kind of dark personality traits. Is that correct for our discussion today? Psychopathology is the ultimate umbrella term. It really just means aberrant, non-normative functioning in the brain. Uh, Today, we had thought we would talk about a specific category of psychopathology, and that is, take your pick of the term, but basically people who are malicious, psychopathic, cluster B, personality disordered in a way that really can wreak havoc in people's lives. Does this include people who are simply and highly effectively manipulative? My sense is that people are Machiavellian. I don't know if actually, is that, if that's a pathology or if that's like real politique brought into personal lives where you think it shouldn't be brought in. You see what I'm trying to say? Like, are these people just being cold, rational, and exploiting human weaknesses? Or is there, in fact, something wrong with them? So dark triad, including Machiavellian behavior, psychopathic behavior, and narcissistic behavior, um, can be described as factors in an an overarching, what's called dark factor or D. Now this is an emergent way of thinking about psychopathology and really difficult people. This is an emergent way, it's analogous to G, right? Or general intelligence. It's a factor that is 
thought to include everything from sadism, instrumentalism, it being very instrumental about people, psychopathy. The, the way to think about D or a dark factor or a dark person most broadly is to think about someone who is interested only in utility maximization. So is only interested in their own ends. Now, obviously everybody has self-serving, you know, has a self-serving agenda to some degree. And Corey, I think that's what you were flagging when you mentioned Machiavellianism as realpolitik in operating in the real world. But the, the idea behind the D or dark factor is that these people will do anything to pursue their own agenda that includes hurting others, if others interfere with their own goals, and thirdly, they feel justified in so doing. So if you think about a dark factor in this way, you can map the idea of narcissism onto it. So narcissists are grandiose, they can be very charming, but ultimately they're not at all interested in other people. You can map it onto psychopathy. Psychopaths are known to be callous and unemotional. You know, they, have, they, they essentially have no affective engagement with people. They can read minds, but they can't necessarily experience a range of emotions. So all of these things ultimately have to do with one's own, um, one's own agenda and utility maximization. So I, I should explain why we chose this topic as something to discuss. So Kaya and I occasionally bump into each other at meetings of the, for lack of a better word, power elite. Uh, I, of course, am just a humble scientist that for some reason they've invited that they would like to talk to, and she's a member of the media elite. But at these meetings are sort of people who are super successful in life. They might be billionaires, hedge fund moguls, uh, you name political titans. And of course, there's always this uh, suspicion among us normal folk who are at the meeting that some of the success of these people comes perhaps from uh, an unusual dollop or allocation of these dark traits. Uh, now, maybe this is just sour grapes on the part of uh, us less successful people. On the other hand, maybe it's a deep uh, insight into how human societies work. Uh, I sometimes say that um, the, uh, it's disproportionately sociopaths at the top but they're very good at hiding it. And that may be true, it may be false, but it's a topic that uh, Kai and I have discussed quite a bit over the years. It's also something that's fascinating me because I've noticed a few times in my life, I can't say it's the majority, that there have been people I thought were deeply evil in my profession and that they're unusually successful, partly because they're charming enough that people above them didn't want to call them on it, although they knew what they were doing. So I don't think they made up the majority. I'm thinking partly in my previous field of philosophy. Um, but it's a fascinating topic because I think they're fragments of this personality uh, trait that are actually possessed by really good people. And again, this is something we could get into, but you know, there are two people that were pretty formative in my development, at least watching them. Uh, from a, I mean, always from afar, but reading about them were Bill Clinton and Nelson Mandela. And there's no one I was aware of who had a deeper sense of how humans operated than these two people. Uh, Mandela, as far as I could tell, used it all for the good. But if you read this guy's autobiography, it's almost frightening how well he understands people and how well he knows how to manipulate them if he needs to. Clinton is sort of a little more ambiguous, but I wouldn't call, at least I'd like to hear your point of view, I wouldn't call either of these people 
either sociopaths or having dark triad personalities, but they definitely seem to have certain insights and ability so, to operate. Just to jump in there, I, I think the ability to have insight into other people or think strategically or to manipulate other people isn't necessarily uh, good or bad, right? The, the, the key issue that makes it uh, a real dark trait is that you do this to the with, with sort of no concern for the well-being of the others, and you only treat these other people as instruments toward your own goals. Then it becomes uh, a negative or dark trait. Uh, and so the this basic skill to be good with people or to understand how other people tick is, is I think, not sufficient for you to be characterized in this dark category. So not so the understanding, but also having the capacity and sometimes manipulating them is also not sufficient. It's the lack of caring about yeah. and you, them. You could even have a more complicated situation where someone literally doesn't feel any emotional concern for what he does to other people, but actually has super idealistic goals. So you could imagine like Gandhi or Clinton, maybe they did have very idealistic goals for where they wanted society to go, but they didn't mind breaking a lot of eggs. And, and so then you have to decide, is, well, is that a good person or a bad person? Maybe just a callous person? Who knows? Well, I actually think there is a type of person. And Let's step aside for a second from the question of how, how whether or not they're dark. I actually don't think this is a dark. Um, th- this is this is a dark constellation. But there's a type of person who is incredibly committed to uh, humanistic goals, who but only in the abstract, and they actually have very little interest interacting with people one on one. They often are very disdainful of people one on one. I think you see this in very intellectual people. I think you see this in very idealistic people who have the intellectual capability to, to pursue their, their overarching aims, but they don't necessarily, there's a grandiosity to it. I mean, I'm hesitant to name names. Possibly Clinton? I don't know the degree to which he enjoyed and, enjoyed and was genuine in his very real very real charisma. People seem to think he loved the Iran people. He just drew energy from them. He was attracted to them. If he found someone in a room who he perceived didn't like him, he was almost magnetically attracted to that person to try to charm them into liking them. He just, uh, he seemed to have a kind of magnetism and a magnetic attraction of people that really seems to show real feeling. Although there's clearly a distance. He also had an ability and an ability to, you know, operate exclusively in his own interests against other people's interests under certain circumstances. Yeah. Now, in all of this, at least for me, I'm operating only at a secondary level because I guess I've only met Obama once and I didn't never met Bill Clinton. But I think what people say about Obama is that um, he isn't naturally as gregarious as Clinton, and it's actually a visible effort for him to be sociable for a few hours, and then he has to go away and recharge uh, and whereas Bill can just do it for hours and hours and hours, and you have trouble dragging him out of the room where all the people are. Yeah, classic so extrovert. I, in case exactly. But but let's let's go back to uh, I think Kai was sort of giving us a slightly more technical definition of what all these terms mean, rather than talk about specific people that you and I are obsessed with. Um, let's let her uh, do her thing. I think that what what intrigues and confounds people about. Um, these dark personalities is the fact that, as Steve says, they are often found in positions of power. Now, these are, for obvious reasons, um, studies and survey data that's difficult to collect. Um, but 
researchers, psychopathy researchers believe that the, 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 profession, the professions in which psychopaths are most prevalent are number two, surgeon, and number one, CEO. Really, I would guess finance. Finance actually has not made the lists I have seen. It may not have been a category they had access to. But you know, it may actually include CEOs of, of, of organizations that would fall into that, in, in that domain. In, in Silicon Valley, uh, typically when you start a company, um, there's a CTO guy who's kind of a nerdy technical guy, and there's a CEO guy. And there's this sort of folk wisdom. If you talk to CTOs, who are very honest, usually typically honest, borderline Aspie type people, they will often say uh, that the CEO has to be a warm sociopath. Warm because he has to be charming and deal with people and people have to like him or her, but ultimately a sociopath. And that's just like standard conventional wisdom. Like, yeah, you know, we, we need a CEO. We, we're trying to put together our team. We need a CEO. He's got to be a warm sociopath. It sounds cynical, but I do think that there, the instrumentalism is very important to get ahead in any career. And to the degree that you find sociopaths, not psychopaths, in, in Silicon Valley or in, in positions of power, I think that that's, that's accurate. Um, psychopathy is, to get technical for a minute, um, psychopathy is considered to be more innate due to perhaps genetics, brain insult at birth, brain injury at birth. Sociopathy is, is actually more environmentally driven. It often is due to um, trauma and other really adverse childhood conditions. Now- Hold on, let me stop you there. Can you distinguish between those two, psychopathy and sociopathy? I think most people don't see a difference between them. Yes, so to back up, there is a difference and these terms are used interchangeably, um, often incorrectly, uh, which is fine because when psychopathy, the term was coined around 1900 and it was used to actually talk, um, describe people who are morally weak. So a lot more psychology was framed in moral terms in a century ago. And ultimately, the term psychopathy morphed into the term sociopathy because these were people who wreaked havoc not just on, the, on, their, on their immediate, their, people in their immediate circle, but on society. So today, we think, we think of sociopaths as people whose behavior can be callous, can be instrumental, very similar behavior patterns to psychopaths, but the genesis of that behavior is more environmental. Um, and for that reason, they are considered more amenable to change. They're considered amenable to therapy in a way that, that psychopaths are not, and they're considered to be expedient based on circumstance. So somebody can be very sociopathic in a in a business setting, as Steve's, as Steve's conjuring, but, but still have some real relationships, some real affective, affective connection to other people. Not so with psychopaths. Psychopaths would not be able to truly develop affective bonds with anyone. And there we could get into a lot of uh, different, brain, different brain wiring. Skin conductance tests on psychopaths indicate that they have very little, they, they, don't, they don't generate a fear response when tested. 
uh, not so sociopaths. So there are real biological differences. They just haven't been distinguished in, in common parlance. When you talk about skin conductance, that's how uh, lie detector machines uh, tend to operate. So my guess, I'd like to hear your response, is that you can't catch these people using a lie detector. Lie detector tests are... I mean, again, we know they're kind of questionable in general, but it seems like these people are probably especially good at not having a signal. Would that be right? I think that is accurate. I think one reason, I think there are false positives if you're looking at them in terms of psychopathy, of course, because a lot of people can, um, a lot of people don't show arousal for, for other reasons and are able to control it. Are you familiar with Paul Bloom's book, Against Empathy? I know Paul Bloom. I actually have not read the book. You know, he makes an argument in there that one of the problems with empathy is that it kind of paralyzes people. That, for example, if you're extremely empathetic towards somebody, the first thought is, well, that's going to lead you, you, lead you to become more generous towards them. For instance, if you're very empathetic towards a homeless person, you might actually, you know, be more likely to give them money or help them. He points out that's actually not a conclusion you should draw. If you're extremely empathetic, you might just avoid them and thus not help them at all. And so he's arguing that if you actually want to accomplish things in life, uh, you often want to have less empathy and less connection with people because this kind of connection is often painful. It's often something that, as a result, we avoid. And I think this is kind of arguing along the lines that highly effective people may lack empathy because they're simply not constrained by the kind of emotional reactions the rest of us have. And so they're very effective and efficient. They can go into a situation, see that someone needs to be fired, fire them, uh, this, you know, or I mean, just deliver bad news. That deliver bad news. Deliver. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I can give you a very specific example that I've experienced with here. So one of my old friends became first a chair of an Ivy League department and now is one of the senior administrators at this Ivy League school. And, but he is super empathetic. And I remember when he first became chair, it was a nightmare. He, the guy could, I could, every day I saw him, the black circles under his eyes got deeper and deeper because every little crisis in his department, because he was an empathetic guy and a, a friendly guy, he felt he had to get involved, help the people, take the person out for a drink, stay up late uh, helping with the situation. And he was just exhausting himself trying to be an empathic good leader, but there's just too much for you to handle. So at some point, you just have to cut it off. And so I saw that as a, quite a negative thing. You know, now you need a little bit of it. That's why they say warm. So the ideal CEO is a warm sociopath. You have to, you can't have people thinking you're a robot or a Vulcan, right? You have to have people thinking that you're, you're, you like them. I, I really like you, Corey. But on the other hand, you got to be able to just cut the thing and say, hey, we got to do this for the good of the company. We're going to do it. And, um, and then just be able to go to the next decision without having a bunch of like lactic acid build up in your brain over the past decision, right? And so that's, that's the balance. Corey, Bloom's, this, Bloom's articulation of this, of this type of overly empathic, I guess he's talking about the non-empathic person, is, is exactly the, what I was referring to earlier in terms of the person who has idealistic goals, wants to contribute to humanity, if you will, is humanistic and philanthropic, but in fact does not relate individually, and that itself can be can be useful. Steve, you mentioned obviously the, the problems with empaths in power and retaining power. Well, 
mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of literature on the question of who rises to power and why, and the degree to which empathy actually in, impairs people from rising. In the, uh, this has been looked at at the level of companies. This has been looked at at the level of countries. Um, there was a Polish psychologist named Lubczewski, and he survived not he survived the Nazis. He survived the Soviets uh, in World War II. He I believe he was taken prisoner, and ultimately he emerged from this from this chaos to coin a term called pathocracy. And pathocracy is a term; it never caught on, but I really like the term. Pathocracy is basically a country run by psychopaths or sociopaths, and it's the idea that only leaders, I mean, only people who are personality disordered, essentially, can rise to positions of leadership. He has a second postulate, which I don't agree with, and that is when they do, you see psychopathic traits in, the, in his countrymen, in the actual citizens of the country, rise. So he would take that, you know, apply it to historical circumstances. We can put that aside. But I do think the question of path pathocratic leaders, if you will, people who are truly personality disorder, being the only ones who want power, very broadly speaking, uh, because they're not bothered, they're not bothered by it, by the need to be expedient. I think that does obtain. You know, among my some of my friends, there there's a term called big jobs. Like CEO of a public company is a big job, governor of a state or president of a university is a big job, and there's this general recognition that oh oh yeah you know you run into somebody and they say oh yeah my my husband just took a big job so you know like our family is really dealing with all that stress and all this other stuff. And so there's a general recognition that your quality of life is pretty crappy in these big jobs. You're, you're on call 24-7. People are constantly coming to you with difficult problems. All the easy problems get solved at a lower level. So you really have to want something about that job, the title, the money, something about it to put up with that kind of crap in your life. And so, yes, I th the, the, so this comes back to my thesis that it is disproportionately whether it's sociopaths or psycho, whatever it is, dark triad people, it's disproportionately not. I'm not saying all of them are, but it's disproportionately that kind of person that ends up at the, at or near the top. I actually have a question about your term "warm uh, sociopath," um, and I'm curious: is that is the warmth purely put on, or do these people actually have a small a modicum of empathy, a tiny coal ember in there. So, but is <laughs> I mean, are they just kind of really good actors, or do they, does it help to have a little bit, or can we not tell the difference between those two hypotheses? Well, these are spectrum disorders, spectrum behaviors, if you will. If you don't want to pathologize a successful, you know, CEO, um, so to the degree that you have just that that you can be expedient. You can be two-faced. I think um, you, you can also be empathic. It's just a matter of switching it on or off in context. I have often argued that, that being able to compartmentalize is incredibly important for successful people in every domain. And the ability to, again, so the ability to be more or less expedient versus empathic when needed applies to applies to any successful person. Now, I actually think women have a harder time compartmentalizing. And 
I, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I, I think that's a big part of why women fail to obtain or hold certain positions. It's not a lack of competence, but it's the fact that everything else in life tends to bleed into both women's to-do list and into, and into their mind in a different way. It is hard to ruthlessly compartmentalize. It is harder for women to ruthlessly compartmentalize than it is for men. So I, I think there's a pretty well validated, I think it's a big five trait, agreeableness. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So agreeableness, as someone who has high agreeableness is someone who wants to be liked, doesn't want to cause friction uh, between himself and others. Uh, someone who has low agreeableness is someone who's just willing to say it how it is and doesn't matter if people get mad at him. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that men and women, there is a uh, delta in levels, if you just measure the personality factors of a bunch of people, women are a little bit more shifted toward the agreeable side and men are a little more shifted toward the disagreeable side. And you can imagine for some of these big jobs, you have to have a certain level of disagreeableness, right, to deal with uh, the day-to-day. And so then consequently, that difference in personalities might account for some difference in the representation of men versus women in these big jobs. Now, what I just said is super controversial, even even though like each specific fact in the chain, I think is not really um, I'm not sure it's that controversial, Steve. Um, but I think what, what Kai was saying um, is a slightly different point, but they interact. I think what you're saying is that men are willing to be disagreeable uh, and they see that as part of the job and execute it. What Kaiser is saying is that actually that disagreeableness and experiences that come with it bleed into the other aspects of women's lives and their feelings, and men have a harder time blocking that out. And that's probably what makes men able to carry out this kind of thing. I'm, I have a, a lot of difficulty compartmentalizing when bad things happen during the day. It ruins my sleep. And so, you know, I, I've seen this kind of thing play out in different ways. Uh, you know, just give another example. I had I was friends with the writer Dave Wallace, and Dave was an incredibly, at least when I knew him best in college just after that, incredibly careful with people. He avoided conflict as much as possible, primarily because it had such an enormous effect on him that he was really careful just not to get in bad situations with people because it would destroy him for days. Right. So that specific sensitivity could cause you to be very agreeable, right? Exactly. I mean, so when you answer the survey and they say, would you do this in this situation? You're thinking to yourself, I would feel shitty for days after that. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to be agreeable. And so the survey just elicits some score on agreeableness for you, but the, the internal cause could be specifically what you're talking about, or it could be something very different, actually. That's right. It's interesting. As he became more famous, he became much more disagreeable because he simply had to wall himself off. Yeah, in, in the movie, everybody... he's not at all. He's not that agreeable. Yeah, he changed quite a lot, right? But he had to really wall himself off from people. Also, fame went to his head, all these things. But early on, he was a sort of very sensitive guy who... Uh, was you know ways that really weren't apparent to the rest of us around. We were all pretty disagreeable, and he was one of the nicest guys in the group just because I think he was more sensitive than we were. Well, and to the degree that a writer, um, a genius writer in this case, one could one could say, um, needs to be or tends to be hyper empathic and hyper mentalizing, able to model the minds of others. It, it wouldn't surprise me that, that he would be unable to filter out the, the emotions he picks up and he would be subject to what we call emotional contagion. It's funny. That's probably, that's probably why I lived like in uh, Bloomington, Illinois. 
he couldn't stand New York City. It just it was just too much for him, and he would basically run back home after each book don't, tour. Don't you have to be a little disagreeable to function successfully in New York City? <laughs> <laughs> um, y- there are some introverts in New York City who just do their own thing. They kind of run out like little mice, and then they run back. So, so Kai, I wanna, I wanna, I think one opportunity, special opportunity we have with you is that you talk to a lot of people who are actually psychotherapists, right? And so, you know, even without violating the patient-doctor confidentiality, they could give you some general insights about, oh man, all of my patients work on Wall Street and XYZ, or all of my patients are wives of guys who are CEOs and XYZ. So I'm curious, you, you probably have some statistical sense of whether any of what we're talking about is true and and what psychotherapists learn about this assuming of course that their patients are telling them the truth or they can they can see through what their patients say to them among these super successful people are there more uh, dark triad traits um you know how do they affect their own families their relationships etc cetera, etc cetera. my sample size is not large enough honestly to answer that um with to answer that from a therapist from a clinician's point of view um i will say about psychotherapy generally that what you find what 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 brings most people to it um is not intrapsychic distress in fact if we're going to stay on psychopaths they almost never show up for therapy if they do they it's because they're being forced by a partner right or or they want to retain a partner. So they suggest it as this expedient gambit. So you actually don't see a lot. You don't see a lot of, of psychopaths and high D, high dark individuals in therapy for this reason, unless they're remanded there uh, by the courts. So that's not of their volition. So among the working well, you know, clinicians, which is what most clinicians here see in New York City, what you find is very simply people who are struggling with above and above all relationships, just keeping their lives together. And I'll just say briefly that that's exactly, that's what drives most people to our site as well. And it's one very specific type of relationship that drives the majority, not the majority, but the, the single term that drives the most traffic to our site is the term narcissism. Again, these are people who truly wreak havoc. Um, and when, when the cognitive dissonance is such that people don't understand, can't compute, or have been betrayed by these people, that's when they end up in therapy, and that's when they end up on our site. Just to clarify, the, the person right, typing that search term is worried that they themselves are a narcissist, or they're trying to figure out whether their partner in the relationship is a narcissist? Narcissists don't think they're narcissists, and if they do, they don't care. So it's very much the latter. These are people who have been caught in the crosswinds and are trying to are, are trying to emerge. Have usually had the rug pulled out from under them in some way. As you're saying this again, I can't help but think of people in my life, and my impression is that while it may be true that psychopaths are overrepresented among very successful people, I think they're also highly represented among people who are unsuccessful. Absolutely. And so I just sense it's a really a bimodal distribution perhaps, but it's a style of thinking and leads to behaviors that can really get you just kicked out of society and have people just not want to be around you. Even though people go on thinking it's not their fault, the other people are manipulating them, 
and all these trouble and you know have all these other complaints but it seems like in the majority of cases it's probably not a positive personality trait for success uh, that's just my hypothesis that you know I, I think groups are often like uh, organisms they have an immune system and when they detect someone like this inside of their group they're often expelled and you get expelled from a bunch of groups and you're kind of on your own it's very hard to be successful on your own so I'm just curious as to what your thought is about that idea that they're probably overrepresent among the very unsuccessful people that is a hundred percent accurate um, they are incredibly overrepresented in prisons and most of the studies that have been done on psychopaths on psych psychopathy proper are done on inmates and for that reason there are we, we're forced to conjecture about the really successful ones because I think the more successful, the more they evade detection, perhaps lifelong. Um, so there is this disconnect wherein a lot of them are um, the violent ones, the less intelligent ones, really end up in really end up in jail. And these are the ones who are studied, but these are not the ones who are super high mock is a high Machiavellian necessarily. I mean, these are these are not the ones who are brilliantly manipulative. These are the ones who are committing violent crime and get caught. I think your picture is plausible to me that they're overrepresented at high and low success. But And I also think that, you know, if you have a little tribe and someone is caught one too many times telling falsehoods or manipulating people, that they could be voted off the island by the people in the tribe. But now imagine a different social setup where... It's a corporation with thousands of employees, maybe tens of thousands, a small board that only interacts with the CEO a few times a year, picks that CEO to rule over these tens of thousands of people. So the guy only has to fool these 10 people, five people on the board. Now, then you very often will end up with a very high-functioning, I think, high-functioning sociopath running things. Um, As so, a result of bad information flow, right? Yeah, there's not yeah. there's not feedback coming from the bottom, right? This is classic. This is classically the person who kisses up and kicks down. Exactly, right. So you have somebody who's very nice to the members of their board of directors, but not so nice to their direct reports or people way down in the org. Or they might be ter totally fine to people who are three or four levels below them in the organization too. Who knows, right? So. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a hallmark of a successful psychopath is the fa is the, the fact that they attach themselves to people who are even more successful, and they pass in those circles, and people lower down don't have the status to necessarily articulate what they're what they're experiencing or what they're seeing. And I've actually seen this myself in Silicon Valley: people who attach themselves to billionaires, and they and there is then a, an essential halo effect. It's the status halo that that they accrue by being a, a billionaire's right-hand man or, you know, being, having ventures with this person. And that makes them really um, impervious to true, to true ousting, partly because you don't want to, you, you, you know, you don't want to get on the side of the super, of, of the superpower, you know, the super person who is the psychopath's protector. So I think that I was in the field with the most, psychopaths, perhaps sociopaths in academia. I'm pretty sure it's philosophy. That's my personal hypothesis. And the reasons you might think it's philosophy, people are fairly high IQ. They're incredibly good at rationalizing things. That's, in fact, what the field's all about, is giving arguments for some often predetermined position. 
People have commented on some emotional underdevelopment in the field. There's lots of evidence that it may have more problems as regards sexual harassment, treatment of women, things like that. And yeah, what I saw in that field in many ways shocked me, especially as regards a, a, you know, primarily one person who I think was a clear uh, psychopath or sociopath, and he's stolen people's ideas, myriad students' ideas over the years. People higher up the field knew about this and had hired him, but he's incredibly charming, and so he's still phenomenally successful. Clear, fantastic sociopath, but it was sure shocking to me. Anyway, sorry, this is probably, but it was just, there's clearly kind of a complicity often that goes on in a culture around a person like this that allows them to rise up because the behavior is observed before they attain power. And so people have to tolerate it as they're rising through the ranks in order for them to get to very, very high levels. So I think just, for me, it's interesting phenomenon that people could see this around uh, this person and just kind of shrug their shoulders and and actually actively seek him out, thinking he's a cool guy and he's important and blah blah blah. It was just stunning to me. So Corey, to your point about hiding in plain sight, I think that the cultural moment we live in, Me Too being a prime example of this, uh, is one in which there, there's a recognition that historically, you know, even up till now, nobody has spoken out. People have not spoken out about psychopaths, personality disordered individuals, sexual, sexual harassers, sexual aggressors. And we're now living in this, in a moment where corrections are, are, have been put in place. And one that you don't hear a lot about, but that I've been, I've been seeing uh, formulated in, in legal circles is the idea of bad Samaritan laws. So bad Samaritan laws uh, basically mean that you are, a, you are a problem citizen if you don't speak up, if you aren't, don't work as a good bystander. So you have to snitch? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. People now are talking about legislating, uh, trying to legislate uh, people speaking out. And the way that would be done would be to retroactively punish, um, prosecute, fine, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it would be, people who were, had awareness of events and failed to report. Well, that's frightening. Hold well, it. Well, you, we have mandatory reporting uh, requirements That's here. one thing, but I sense what Kai's saying is going beyond that. You know, uh, in the past, if someone engaged you are aware of some behavior in the past that may not have even been illegal then, but was just deeply undesirable. You are obligated to report on that. That's right. And I, a lot of it's hypothetical still. So I don't know what, for example, the statute of limitations would be, but this is an idea that's gained steam recently. And I find it not only disturbing in some ways, but also very, very implausible, very unlikely to ever be implemented Again, I mean, two words, human nature. I, don't, I, I think people um, act in self-protective ways for any number of reasons, and you can't punish somebody who is looking out for themselves, you know, who, but then it, but it gets complicated, right? If we're talking about um, maximizing one's own, um, looking out for oneself first and foremost, at what point does that then 
does that start to hurt other people? And that's back to the question of D, the dark factor. It's, we're all, we all look out for ourselves, but at what point um, do people who do darker people actively circumvent or ignore harm to, uh, harm to others? In the case of this person who I was talking about, I honestly don't think the people around him were dark at all. I think they were in some sense too—a segment of them were just too sunny. So, for example, the person whose ideas he plagiarized uh, just took him out to lunch to discuss the issue, to kind of resolve what was going on. And uh, the sociopaths, his response is the sociopaths said, well, oh, my idea is a notational variant of yours, as if, you know, we had the same idea independently, and I just presented it differently. And the guy's idea he stole just kind of went on with life. And the people who promoted this person were kind of aware, were definitely aware of all the stuff he had done, but just sort of kind of good-natured, Almost all guys, good-natured older guys, didn't want to, uh, you know, why cause all this trouble? Why, you know, let's just go along and get along. Yeah, he's a problem, but, you know. We're living in jail. No, I'm just kidding. You know, yeah, so it, it's interesting. They were, you know, it's, it's, I don't, I'm not sure there was even, I'm pretty sure there's not a simple common personality trait they had. There's quite a lot of diversity, but there was a, a conflict aversiveness these people had and a general sense of just let's just go on with life as this sociopath kind of tore his way through life, harming people below him primarily. But it, it just it strikes me that for these people to succeed remarkably, as this person has done, requires the people around him mostly just not pay attention and not punish behavior that comes out. It seems like there has to be some kind of complicity for these sociopaths to pull it off, right? They've got to worm their way up the hierarchy, and that only works if nobody cuts them off. By the definitions we've been using, um, let's suppose I'm very rational, and I, I have my goals, I want to get ahead, and I don't mind screwing people over every now and then, but I, I know it's counterproductive to screw everybody over, so I just do it occasionally. And the main difference is, internally, I really don't care about anybody else but myself, what what is there to say? Like you you you're not going to necessarily easily detect that person. No, not- I, no, I think you. I think people do detect this person, and I think these people just sort of say, "Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get involved, or you know, just leave them alone." So I I do think that people around. I think these people only succeed because people around them don't intervene in some way. See, I would say in a corporate setting, you could either have the case where the people on the board think, no, Joe's a good guy. He's actually, we, we, we bonded over uh, at our last retreat over, you know, the environment. So we're actually, he's actually a good guy. Or you could have peop- a few of people on the board saying, no, Joe, I understand Joe can be a jerk, but you need a jerk in this job. But, but long before Joe got to the CEO level, he had to rise up through the company. And he probably had to do some unpleasant things to people around him. And, and, and that was hard because, I, you know, I, I think some organizations aren't like this, but um, but there, but there are organizations where people are aware of what's happening and essentially have to become complicit, uh, or at least non-intervening in these. Uh... I think that 
oftentimes you could have a situation where this, remember these are high functioning sociopaths, their, their direction is upward, right? So they're harming other people when they know they can get away with it, right? They're, I steal your idea, but nobody's going to listen to you, uh, right? And so they're strategic, right? They're, so, so yes, people noticed, but the people who noticed were not in any position to do anything about the guy. What I would say is I didn't, in, look, I have a very small sample size. The person I'm thinking of it was not particularly strategic, uh, he had, he probably had no reason to think he'd get away with this. Sometimes he didn't get away with it. People called him on it periodically, but the field never reacted. And that was... Was he, was he very well known? Was he yes. respected? He's well father? known. He was intensely disliked by some people. Uh, further out, people respected him. I think there is a phenomenon uh, that captures this, and that's the, the fact that the higher you are... Um, the higher your value in, in, in your social hierarchy, academic, academic world, in, in this case, academic milieu, the more your behavior can deviate from group norms without you being ostracized from that group or kicked out of that department. And it's actually, this is actually known as um, idiosyncrasy credit. So if you are if you are high status, high achieving, necessary to necessary to the organization, you know, um, tenured at the university, at, you have a certain credit. You have certain social credit, and you can debit quite a bit before you actually before you hit zero. There, a lot of people will just look the other way. This has been demonstrated. So I think at some point in his career, this kicked in. Before that, he got by on charm. People just he was a fun, likable guy. Philosophy is a very a field full of awkward people. He was a charming guy in a field full of awkward people as a grad student. And so that's he he got a great job coming out. He kind of plagiarized his thesis, but it didn't get too far. That information didn't spread too far. And yeah, then he got to a point where effectively uh, he benefited from his status. But early on, he got by in the fact that people just didn't call him on. He was just very charming. And and that's, I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting at is I think we have to look at the fact that these people do come up from a basis and uh, there just has to be a stage at which, uh, you know, society could stop them and doesn't. So it just, I think it tells us something about our society uh, that this is allowed. <laughs> And what does it tell us about all societies, though, that, this, that, that the behavior endures? It, it could be just luck, though. I mean, even if you have a society where people were adamantly going to beat down sociopaths as soon as we catch them, still that some guys get lucky and they don't get caught or something intervenes and they still manage to fluctuate upward, even though people are out looking for them. So I'm curious as to whether this is, the sociopaths have the same effect in deep the communal societies where you're really expected to reciprocate and people monitor your behavior much more. My expectation is that would be more difficult for them to rise up. Yeah. I, I think if we're living in some you know, hunter-gatherer tribe where we just basically interact with the same 30 people all the time, we might even be related to each other, it's probably very tough for the sociopath to get, get, on with the, uh, get over on other people in that situation, right? Are you familiar with Mark Hauser's work? With, um, I think he's working on... Uh, Wild macaques, and he got into trouble because some of his stuff was faked. But one of his most famous studies, and again, of course, the fakery cast out everything that went before her. But uh, he studied um, his animals. I think it was in uh, 
island off the coast of Venezuela. But basically, if you found food, you had to call and let others know you'd found food. And uh, but sometimes these monkeys would try to you know game the system. They find food, start eating it, and that they saw someone, they'd start calling. <laughs> and and if they caught you in that circumstance, they beat the crap out of you. Uh, it was just very regular. So anyway, it, you know, there was a kind of immediate negative feedback to deviating. And um, I just think there's some societies where there's uh, it's more difficult to get away with that kind of double dealing. Now, the really controversial thing is that, so imagine that uh, in this uh, macaque population, the circumstances are such that this kind of social structure evolved and it's very effective, right? So the, 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 the ones that are born with the genes that predispose them to being sociopathic get beat down and they don't reproduce as much as the ones that are just honestly good. So you could have populations which diverge. And so like the, the percentage of people that are pro-social is much higher in one population than in the other population, which somehow has a different equilibrium and tolerates more sociopaths. Uh, so the rate of psychopathy is pretty consistent in all populations where it's been measured. It's 1%. It's 1% of men and a third of a percent of women. It's harder to get data on women. But, it, you know, this, this number is a constant. And that raises the question of some sort of balancing selection, right? I mean, as long as the behavior is rare, it will be advantageous. And there will be a fraction of those of, of, of this population that is able to get away with it. Do we have any reason to think, though, that there could be a difference in how successful they are? Say, take Scandinavia, our kind of classic, everyone's both the left and the right left Scandinavia, but for different reasons. Uh, uh, the classic example of sort of a small society, high levels of trust, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any reason to think that a sociopath might be less likely to be successful in a country like that than a country like U.S., which is more uh, kind of, you know, open with kind of teeth and blood? and uh... It's a great question. I've actually looked at and cross-cultural info on psychopathy. It, um, it's really not, no clear trend is coming to mind. But what I'll say is that I think it's about the niche. I, I think it's about the niche that they occupy in any given society. I think it's a it's about more than it is the, 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 you know, the superstructure of the society itself. I think it is about finding and exploiting a, an interpersonal weakness in the school where you happen to be teaching, um, in the you know, parliamentarian system in which you have just been elected because you're so charismatic. So I, I think it's much more about uh, ecological than it is broadly cultural, if that makes sense. Completely. Can we turn to my general interest in psychology today? Because I really, I'm really curious about your readership. And when you say that people tend to come to your magazine because they have questions about their own lives, really fascinates me. So it suggests that you're not just writing a popular science magazine, you're writing a popular therapy magazine. Or self-help, Or self-help. Self is that... Uh, how do you think about psychology today? I'd like to think that we're broad enough to encompass all of this. Like the field itself, like psychology itself, there is a... We have a clinical arm that includes our, our therapy directory, which is the largest aggregator of, of, of psychologists, um, mental health professionals in the world. But then we address, we, we, we address research and behavioral science as well. I don't think I'm answering your question, though. 
people come to, I'll tell you what people, I, I'm going to deliberately conflate our online readers and our magazine readers. I can tell you, no surprise, that the online readership is, is the huge lion's share um, of our audience, even though the magazine still is perhaps um, is, 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 is better known in, in a way. And people come to us with what I call gut issues, issues that they're struggling with inter either interpersonally or intrapsychically, meaning just their kids, their, you know, their, their, their partners, their nurses, their possibly narcissistic partner. Um, these are the things the, they present with very universal problems. And do you see yourself as trying to provide answers in article or story format? Uh, how do you see yourself engaging with your, your readers? Do you, do you look to try to find authors you think have a way of getting, delivering content that will help solve people's problems? Um, I guess it's probably a mix, right, of just interesting research findings and practical articles. Exactly. Exactly. I think that we, I mean, we're very focused on be uh, on clarifying these ter clarifying terms for people, clarifying disorders that they may be struggling with. But ultimately, I believe from a, so that's the clinical psych perspective. We want to answer people's questions about human nature. From a journalistic perspective, however, I believe that you have to offer both brain and heart, meaning you have to capture people's attention in order to fully penetrate with the information you want to, what you want to convey, if that makes sense. So that's where the, that's where the journalistic element comes into, comes into play and comes into the fore. Can I ask, since we, we're now deviating into the uh, psychology today, publishing uh, part of things, I'm curious in your day-to-day -day job as editor-in-chief, how much are you involved in strategizing about clicks and clickbait and metrics and stuff like that? Does that come to dominate journalism now to some extent, or are you able to operate kind of uh, independent, independent of that? I hate the word clickbait, but I, I certainly know what you're asking. We have to be focused on SEO. Any editorial enterprise in this day and age has to understand and focus on SEO. So for the listeners, that's search engine optimization. So I, I think there was a time, maybe, I think there was a, I, I think within the last decade that shifted. I think, the, I think that the media entities that, that didn't move online fast enough or that didn't understand SEO were the losers and, and didn't endure. And I don't want to impugn any publication. It's a very, very hard, it's a hard environment out there, um, obviously. You know, my profession is in turmoil and it's not clear what the outcome will be. But to your question, Steve, yes, I do think about and strategize about SEO. So can I ask, so one aspect of SEO could be like exactly what links you have in your HTML or where you put images and, you know, just optimizing for the robot, for the search engine. But another aspect of it is like, hey, we got to have an article on you know, uh, Prince Andrew is really hot now. We got to have an article about the psychology of pedophiles or, so, you know, whatever it is. Are you engaged in that as well? Like basically strategizing on what topics will get the clicks uh, as well as just making sure your site and the layout and things like that are optimized for search engines? I'm fortunate that we generate enough content that I don't 
I do not focus on any individual on assigning for any individual news story. There are stories that we cover for the sake of covering. In that sense, we're very old school journalistic, and, and, and I'm, I'm pleased with that fact because I mean we we're, we're producing. 40 plus pieces online a day, and ultimately they are going to hit on many of the topics du jour. Therefore, one doesn't need to strategize about it at the level of the news event, but one does need to strategize about it at the level of, at the, level of the term, right? At the, at the level of the actual terms that are being searched. And that, so that is where, we, that, that is where we, we, we put our focus. I guess this is a pretty obvious question to ask an editor-in-chief, but what are the topics that are of most interest to your readers today? What's interesting is that the, the topics of interest today are the topics that were of interest 10 years ago. And these are, the, these are for lack of a better word, um, the human universals, the gut issues that, that people wrestle with. So relationships is, is, is first and foremost. Um, the thing that people want to read about. I mean, they obviously have want to understand clinical developments and pathways to treatment, but truly most people, most of our readership are not in any sort of clinical setting or, you know, getting, getting therapy of any sort. They really just are struggling with what, um, what, what Faulkner called uh, very elegantly, the, the human heart in conflict with itself. They're really struggling with intrapsychic problems, and this is you know, this is a split readership, male and f- male and female. What fraction of each? What's your uh, breakdown? We skew female, not necessarily as much as you might think. It's it's about fifty five forty five. So number one topic is relationships. Yes. Can you give me the next four? I can give you search terms. That'd be great. Well, I will tell you this, and this is not going to be that. Th- this is going to be no surprise to anyone listening, uh, who and listening online, as it were. Uh, the number one search topic, search word. Do you want to guess? Sex. Yeah, yeah. They they're, they're just they're inevitably disappointed when they land on us, when they land on psychologytoday.com in that, and hopefully that's the only arena in which we disappoint. That said, um, we did build out that we did build out. Um, taxonomically and otherwise that's that particular section because we we understood that people were ending up here what's a typical psychology today article about sex about well a lot of it's normalizing um normalizing the things that people that that would perturb people or again that they that they would struggle with so sexual fantasies we've had we recently had a really um a piece that essentially went viral breaking down sexual fantasies and essentially reassuring people that XYZ, like you shouldn't say it on, on an academic podcast, you know, that XYZ is all normal. I assume after sex, is it something like child or children, people worried about their kids, parenting? I mean, it fluctuates month to month. Honestly, after that, again, we're talking about search terms. Um, then it's really trying understanding these definition these definitional terms understanding something like borderline personality disorder it would be searching that term you're aware this there's a set of people out there sorry i'm deviating a little bit but there's a set of people out there who seem to have like this unnaturally high levels of happiness you know they're kind of, they're not really impacted by negative events like the rest of us my father has this characteristic a little bit like he seems 
negative things that would really down other people don't seem to really affect him. Like a couple years ago, a really good friend of his died. And he's describing this experience to me. He says, yeah, you know, out of my our close group is really bent out of shape, you know. And I'm like, your good friend just died. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I had some trouble like, finishing my grading like last week. But otherwise, it seemed to have no effect on him whatsoever. I think this speaks to our discussion about compartmentalization, in fact. It's not that there, it's, it's, it's not that there's not a, you know, a, a drag, a, you know, a grief, an affective shock, but, but one is able to successfully cope with it and manage it in a way that most people cannot. It, it could be. He's got these other, sorry, I'm, just, I'm fascinated by him in some ways, but he's got these other characteristics which are interesting. Like he, um, he avoids stress like oil and water. Um, so he told me a while ago that whenever he finds someone in his life he doesn't like, he simply uh, can't remember their name. It, it just gets erased. And so that causes no stress. And so, you know, he he was a grad student for a while during the age of, um, you know, behaviorism, where you would basically put rats in a Skinner box and either reward or punish them. And he realized halfway through his graduate career, he'd simply forgotten to do the punishment experiments. He'd only done the reward experiments, and he just kind of neglected to do the punishment one. So that sounds like a psychopath. No, I'm not. They are, they are hyper. I'm, I'm joking. Yeah, it's, it's like, but it's kind of, it's like the nice version of it. They are hypersensitive to reward cues in the environment, right? That's why, um, and very insensitive to punishment at, at, at every level that, uh, you know. I think base levels of happiness vary between people. And it, I think there's evidence that it's somewhat heritable as well. My mom is a super positive person, is almost never not happy. Of course, she's also a devout Christian, which helps too. But I think I inherited some of that from her. So I'm typically very positive. And I was twice diagnosed uh, as hypomanic. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. A lot of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are hypomanic. And once when I was in New Haven, my next door neighbor was a psychologist and she diagnosed me as hypomanic. What does hypomanic mean? My understanding of it is it's somebody who's very positive, tends to get really excited about new projects and wanting to do something um, and is undeterred by setbacks. It's having, it's, it's low levels of, of, right, of mania with, or just positive affect, positive feelings and, and drive. Yeah. And the other guy who diagnosed me was this Japanese theoretical physicist who I spent a lot of time with. And he, one day he just comes in and he said, he says to me, uh, Stephen, are you familiar with the term hypomanic? <laughs> and, and, I, and I had no idea what he was talking about. And then he like, he like shows me, I don't know if it, we had the internet then, but he shows me the definition of hypomanic and I'm reading, I'm like, yeah, I'm hypomanic. How do you distinguish in your, in your life hypomania from high productivity? Well, you know, some people could be very productive, but they're suffering while they're being productive. You can imagine a guy who's like, oh, I got to pull. Actually, I had a roommate like this at Caltech, uh, this guy, Will, that you know. He would, he would, if he had to pull an all-nighter, he would pull the all-nighter, and he hated it, and he was not happy, and he was glum. And if you, if you said, how's it going, Will, he'd be like, he'd, he'd swear or something. So he was not hypomanic, but he was highly productive and highly effective. I'm not like that. Best of both worlds. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm just generally pretty happy. I think my happiness level is set pretty high. You know, my case, my father, I think it's set pretty high, but I think there are features of his personality which simply avoid negative things, right? He simply, he can kind of detect negativity 
and just intuitively moves away from it. Yeah, I might be coping in ways that I'm not really aware of. And people are like, why is Steve ignoring all these people who are trying to kill him? And and uh... so, so, so this is a line from my dad. He said to me like, like a couple years ago, I mean, the guy's 83, right? And you think like these kind of personal revelations would have come earlier. But he turns to me like, this is a new thought. He says, Corey, you know, there's all sorts of bad human behavior and bad human intentions. And you know, I've been ignoring all of it. It's like he just occurred to him like at age 80. And so- Well, it's great that if you can do that your whole life and you're not knocked off it doesn't and it doesn't harm you, that's fantastic. Wouldn't it be great to live in a world where you only notice the good stuff? No, he, 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 ne- he has no trouble sleeping. He falls asleep within 10 minutes every single I night. I do too. My head hits the pillow and then I wake up like eight and a half hours later. Most nights. Now I'm getting older. It's changing a little bit. But. Oh, man. If I could- Turn off like all the hassle that happened during the day. I would, I would empty my bank account. Like I put like a permanent drain in my bank account. Just take all the money in my bank account any moment, just to like not have what happened during the day affect me. It, it's interesting. I think a lot of this is just hardwired. It's just how how you're wired up. My my mother, I used to say, is kind of negatively. She's magnetically attracted to negative thoughts. My dad was kind of congenitally happy and avoiding negative thoughts. And I think I've kind of like the bicameral brain between the two of them. Sorry to bore you with this, but. I do think that um, a lot of the, 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 the traits and behaviors that ultimately determine, make a difference in our lives are innate. And to that extent, um, I think one of the overarching goals slash struggles of, of, of clinical psychology is, is to balance acceptance of what, what what cannot be changed with the with the eternal human drive to you know to amelioration to to improvement and I think it can be very hard for people to find that balance I think we're, I think there are a lot of messages about things that can be changed that can't necessarily be changed and, and at the same time I think there are areas that people don't realize they can sort of move the needle so I'm curious in your role you must have to walk a pretty fine line between telling people the truth and discouraging them. Because a lot of people get onto your site must have fairly deep and innate personality traits that you yourself probably think cannot be changed or changed much. You can't write that, can you? Saying, look, you know, this is who you are. Sorry about that. But like, it's not going to get much better. You can't, you can't have a magazine where that's in your articles constantly. I know. I mean, in all seriousness, we, we, we're here to help anyone with it. But I, I just see personality a little differently and a little more positively, perhaps. I mean, I see personality as a set of trade-offs. And, and there, are, there are behaviors that can look really, you know, really aberrant and, in fact, serve an individual well. And some of, them, some of the people who societally uh, seem the most troubled... It, we're back to the realm of personality disorders. I'm not going to go into psychopathy specifically, but some of the people who seem the most disturbed, you know, the loners, people who maybe have a little bit of a paranoid streak. I mean, the paradox there is they're not troubled at all. They actually don't often don't even realize that they deviate from the norm. But among people who get onto your site, though, there are people coming with different kinds of issues. Some can probably be changed uh, to varying degrees by personal effort, and some can't. But I'm just wondering whether, you know, there's there's always going to be a re- there's always it's always going to be beneficial to a magazine or even a therapist to suggest to someone that with our help you can do better, and it's probably not going to be in either magazine or therapist's interest to say, look, probably not much can be done about this trait. So I'm wondering, do you have do you see that as an issue that's you have to face in your business and 
how do you respond to that? Can I have an example? Yeah. So, you know, someone writes in and you kind of see, you know, for example, someone maybe pretty narcissistic or maybe they're just, uh, they're just kind of a nasty person, right? And they've been like that from pretty early age. They've been pretty insensitive to people around them. And they write in and say, you know, I kind of want to change. I'm 55. I've realized I've harmed people pretty much my whole life. And you get the impression from persons writing in that they're pretty self-centered and selfish. Corey's and, confessing right now. Yeah, of course. That's it's me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but if someone like that writes in, you know, my reaction would be to think, you know, I'm glad you're coming to this realization at this age, but odds are you're not going to change all that much. And even even though they are coming to you, maybe that's a good sign in some degree, but I'd be pretty pessimistic. If somebody's presenting with a desire to change or to modify a behavior, I, I don't want to be simplistic, but I think that that's sometimes half the battle. I do think that the people who self-select and go as far as not just being in, you know, our audience community, but actually in our directory community and, and connecting with, with clinicians um, have actually taken the, done the hardest thing, which is often to take the first step. Um, what happens when their spouse writes in and say, hey, I, I've got this person in my life describing a long, uh, you know, a long history of behavior, uh, and that's not the person having the realization, but the spouse. In that case, again, I think that it'd be, uh, you know, someone might be pessimistic about the possibility of saving, of saving this relationship, but there's a kind of, there's a sense in which as a therapist or a magazine, you might want to tell this person something else. Are you guys inclined to say that at various points in time when you uh, describe a certain kind of history of behavior? We would never be that prescriptive. I mean, again, we're not dealing one-on-one -on -one with readers. But in general, um, say, 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 here's a range of personality trait. This is probably not changeable. I actually would never be, honestly, I wouldn't be that prescriptive because I don't think, because the, 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 the context of, of the individual relationship is always so important. I mean, privately, would I say to somebody, you know, get the hell out, sure. But, but even the, I mean, people are complicated, right? And even the most toxic personality types, short of psychopathy, we're gonna, we're, we're, we're gonna put the truly dark, we're, we're gonna put the high D, very dark people aside. But, but even the most difficult personality types can, can be worked with. I, 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 do believe, I, I do believe that, short of, psych, short of psychopathy. And, and truly grandiose narcissism. You know, if you're not a psychopath... There's hope for you. There's hope for you. You can improve. I like that message. Uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of believe it a little bit. A little bit? You know, I'm, it's, people are complicated. It's gonna, I'm thinking you're just saying it's, it's going to depend upon a function of your motivation and your openness to change, right? So as you get closer to a psychopath, the motivation has to go up. In commensurate levels, um, which it will not, right? Yeah. And and it, it's going to be a function of age and circumstance and a bunch of other things. Our guest today has been Kaya Perna of Psychology Today. Corey, it's been uh, fantastic to have her here. Uh, we hope to have you back again. This has been a great conversation, Kaya. Thank you. I really enjoyed chatting with both of you. Talk to you both soon.